1: Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 154 The Hunted. Welcome
0: into another episode of Mission Log,
2: a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm your genetically enhanced, mission specific, and very dangerous co host, Ken Ray. Each week on Mission
0: Log, we pick apart a single episode of Star Trek, and we're talking about all the episodes ever made of every series and the movies. And then we pick each one apart, looking for morals, meanings, messages, the ethics, the philosophy. What makes it tick? This week, we're talking about The Hunted.
2: And then, when we're done, I'll be sent back to the colony with the other genetically enhanced podcasters, waiting to do it all again next week. That is, if they can catch me. In the meantime, you can catch us a few different ways. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. This is if you want to send, I don't know, letters for my release or just thoughts on any episode that we have. Uh, You can call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at rottenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and all kinds of other fun stuff, is at MissionLogPodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And just a little um, just a little bit of advice. Don't send any threatening messages. Just, you know, <laughs> that's from me to you. Everything goes fine if you don't. And if you do, <laughs> I don't like to think about it. I, I, there's, there's one thing, though, that I like to think about, but not as much as John Champion does. And that is, of course, a little Star Trek trivia.
0: All right. So, uh, Ken, today's episode is directed by Cliff Bull, and uh, we have talked about Cliff many, many times. So uh, let's spend a little time talking about the writer. Now, The Hunted was written by Robin Bernheim, who is actually not Robin Bernheim. That's a nom de plume for Robin Jill Berger. Robin had worked her way up the ranks on such 80s TV shows as Remington Steele, Matlock, MacGyver, before writing this episode of Next Gen. MacGyver.
2: Yeah, because there's a
0: little bit of a MacGyver feel in this episode. There is a little bit of a MacGyver feel. It's yeah. kind of kind of appropriate, right? Um, now, like we've seen so far, though, there are other hands in the creative process here. So, uh, Michael Pillar, of course, had a lot of influence driving the script, and it's time for us to say hello to a new name that will become very familiar over time: Iris Stephen Bear. His first job on Star Trek as a staff writer was a rewrite on The Hunted, and uh, he is credited uh, amongst that writing staff with most of the act in which Danar is trying to escape the Enterprise. Now, don't worry about Robin. We'll hear more from her later, just not on The Next Generation. So, who is this Ira Stephen Bear? Well... He's a playwright from New York, and he moved to L.A. to write comedies rather than use his playwriting scholarship at Brandeis University. He didn't so much write comedies, but he found a niche with drama and came into Next Gen knowing nothing of that show, but knowing the original series pretty well. We'll talk more about Ira's tenure at Next Gen later, and we'll catch up with him again down the road when we talk more about Deep Space Nine. Um, now, a couple of effects notes in here. That is a new matte painting we're seeing here for uh, Angosia 3, meaning that it wasn't recycled from another show, though it looks reminiscent of paintings that we've seen on other sci-fi cityscapes. And uh, it won't turn up again. This is a, a one-off for that matte painting. Hmm. And um, if you're paying close attention to such things, uh, you'll notice that we have a new set for the Brig. Uh, the square doorway has now gained some interesting angles and there is more detail on the walls and uh and hey this brig has a sink very exciting for anybody thrown in that brig and if you're watching the remastered high def version of this episode you can actually stop and read the record on danar so the blurry screen of gibberish text and numbers is replaced here by an actual bio uh, one line is pretty funny it states uh Rogat Danar's first assignment was guard duty at Kevscati Military Base. Now, Kevin Scotty is from CBS Digital, and his name also shows up as one of Claire Raymond's descendants in The <laughs> Neutral Zone. And you'll find a lot of other names like that if you look very closely. So uh, Jeff McCarthy played Danar. He got his start in New York performing on Broadway, then came back to his native California, where he has worked successively in TV guest star roles. He started out with The Equalizer and he's appeared in such shows as L.A. Law, Law and Order, Designing Women, Cheers. He will be back from more Star Trek very briefly. Stick around a few years when we return to the Delta Quadrant for that. And finally, uh, towering at nearly six foot seven, James Cromwell appears here as Prime Minister Nayrock. Cromwell is so well known, it feels a little weird to try to sum up his career in the quick glance that is our trivia section. I find it interesting that he is an outspoken political activist, an animal rights activist. Some of his earliest TV work was on All in the Family, followed by Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, MASH, Three's Company. He's played a U.S. president multiple times; two of the real-life ones being LBJ and George Bush the uh, First. He's also played other historical figures like Charles Keating, and he played William Randolph Hearst in RKO Two Eight One. Uh, his first and so far only Academy Award nomination came in 1996 for his role in the movie Babe. And he won an Emmy for his time on American Horror Story, which uh, is quite deserved because it was pretty damn creepy.
2: That is that is that is a uh, that's a tremendous amount of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I know Star Trek has a tendency to, you know, they find somebody good. They'll, they'll, they'll get him back. Mm-hmm. Um, will we ever see James Cromwell on Star Trek again?
0: I have no idea.
1: So, that guy. Is he not the one who was first to achieve warp drive on Earth?
2: Prologue. And Gosha 3 would like admission into the Federation and the Enterprise is there to give them the once over. Picard and Riker are getting a tour from Prime Minister Nayrock, who is totally not Zephyrm Cochran. Especially impressive, the ability of Angosia III to recover from the Tarsian War. Prime Minister Nayrok's like, yeah, that is impressive, isn't it? See, we're thinkers, not fighters, though not every culture feels that way. He and Picard reach. The development of the mind, the cultivation of the intellect, these are the pursuits to which Angosians have dedicated themselves for centuries. Prime Minister Nayrock steps away for a moment, giving Riker and Picard a second to chat. Picard thinks Angusia 3 will fit right in with the Federation, though Riker thinks it's a little bit stuffy. Upon his return, Prime Minister Nayrock says a prisoner has escaped from the colony on Lunar 5. Two guards are dead. The guy got a ship and got away, and... Golly gee, Picard, we just don't have what it takes to catch up with him. With the go-ahead from the captain, Riker sets the Enterprise on finding and catching the guy. Commander Data says finding him is no problem. Worf does that almost as soon as it's mentioned. Catching him, though, he's playing a really good game of hide and don't find. Commander Data informs Riker and Picard that the prisoner has eluded the Enterprise. Act 1. Back aboard the Enterprise, Riker and Picard are overseeing the pursuit of Roga Danar, identified now as the escapee. His criminal record is too long to go into, according to the Prime Minister though Nayrock warns Picard that Danar is prone to bouts of uncontrollable violence. Dude's also wicked smart. So far, he's managed to steal a ship, escape in that ship's drive section, which goes about as fast as a Model A, then hide that ship without anyone knowing how, all while eluding sensor scans for life readings. Now he's using the magnetic pole of Angosia three to hang out without anyone noticing it. Well, until Riker realizes that's probably what he's doing. Data recalibrates ship's sensors, and there he is. Well, there's the drive section. Still no life readings, though. The Enterprise locks a tractor beam on the drive section, but wow, this is nuts. The guy is actually gunning it toward the Enterprise. His piece of a ship bounces off the Enterprise shields, and Picard orders the whole drive section beamed aboard. But Data says don't bother. Danar is no longer in the drive section. It fits the pattern. He's probably in an even smaller ship, and sure enough, he is. It's an escape pod, though still no life readings. Picard orders Transporter Chief O'Brien to beam anything big enough to be a guy from the escape pod to the Enterprise. O'Brien gives the okie-dokie and starts the transporter, holding Danar in stasis until security can get there. He's also detected a weapon in the transport, though that's been rendered inoperative. So Danar just goes about disarming the two-man security team and O'Brien with his bare hands, shrugging off stuns from phasers as he goes. Eventually, Worf and Riker are able to subdue Danar and get him to a detention cell. Act 2. Prime Minister Nayrock, totally not Zephram Cochran, says they'll need a few hours to fix what Danar broke during his escape. If the Enterprise could hold him for a few hours, yeah, that'd be great. He also says prison psychologists suggest sedating Danar. He is dangerous. Picard says they'll look after him. Riker wants to know whether Data has run a check on the ship's sensors. He has, and they're fine. The Enterprise didn't pick up any life readings off of Danar because he has none. Oh, he's there. And he's alive. But somehow he's hiding his life signs. But he can't hide his feelings. Well, not all of them. And not from Counselor Troy. She gets seriously troubled vibes off of Danar as he sleeps fitfully in his cell she goes to talk to Danar where we begin to learn a bit about him yes he killed people to get away from lunar 5 a terrifying thought even to him she senses that going back there scares him too though he's not mistreated there food clothing shelter comfort he's actually well treated there it's just that he can never leave also he really doesn't like counselor troy He parries her queries with falsehoods and games, accusing her of being a mind-control expert. She says that's not what she is. She's there because she sensed he was in pain. So they're both surprised to find that now, his pain is gone. Talking it over with Captain Picard, Troy says something's not right. It's almost like Danar is two people. She knows about his crimes. He knows about his crimes. And he hates them. But somehow, it's not him. Well, Picard says he'll be the problem of Angosia three again in a few hours, and Picard will be happy about that. Troy says she gets it, but she's still on the case. She asks Data to access Rogadinar's police record. He has none. A criminal like that with no police record? Data says Lunar five is actually a military prison. Looking over his military record, this guy was good. He even achieved many high level citations. So what's he doing in jail? Troy goes back to talk to Danar. You were a non-violent person. What did you do to end up in jail? His answer? Everything he was told to do. This made him a menace to society as far as society was concerned. He was conditioned to do whatever he had to for the war. Conditioned by a counselor, by the way, so... Good choice on that title. Act 3. Troy, Riker, Picard, and Dr. Crusher are talking over Roga Danar. He was an idealistic young man who answered his planet's call of duty, to fight to protect the Angosian way of life. But they turned him into a war machine, physically and mentally, all the way down to a cell structure that can fool sensors. A machine that, when the war was over, had no place in their society. He's actually perfectly fine, as long as he perceives no threat. If he perceives a threat, though, he's conditioned to negate that threat, or survive it, at any cost. And Lunar 5 is not a prison, Well, not for criminals, anyway. Rather, it's where the Angosian government sent its soldiers when the war was over. No attempt to recondition them was made. When they came back tweaked from the war, the Angosian government simply sent them away. Data goes to talk over the situation with Danar. The android sees similarities between the two. Both have been programmed. But Data's programming can be altered. Cannot Danar's? Danar assumes not. I mean, if they could fix me, wouldn't they? In his ready room, Picard is talking over Danar's assertions with the Prime Minister. Look, Lunar 5 is not a prison. It's a colony, says Narok. A colony built for the protection of the soldiers, in society, off-planet, with security. But it's not a prison. Yeah, says Picard, except it's a prison. Picard says his people think there might be help for Danar and people like him, though Narok says, no, there isn't. And now, you're treading on matters of internal security? We're on our way to pick up Danar. Thanks for your help. Nayrock out. Data and Danar are still talking over the soldier situation when Picard and Troy come in. Picard wanted to let Danar know face-to-face that he has no choice but to turn Danar back over to the Angosian government. Thanks, says Danar, and don't worry. You're right to get rid of me. There is no place for me in a civilized society. Troy and Data disagree. Picard says he trusts his officers, but his hands are tied. Oh, says Danar, you should know, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get away. And of course, once the Angosians try to retake possession, get away is exactly what Danar does. Act 4. The Enterprise is on lockdown, Danar is gone, and a phaser is missing. It is an elaborate game of cat and mouse. A fairly tense one, too. And despite having numbers and technology, the Enterprise is outclassed. Danar was made for this. In a manner of speaking. It's an exciting chase, and one that ends with Danar beaming to the Angosian transport ship, overpowering its crew, and getting away. Act five. Danar wasn't looking to get away. He was just looking to get away from the Enterprise. He takes the Angosian transport ship back to Lunar Five, where he frees the other Angosian super soldiers, and now they are headed toward the Angosian capital city. Prime Minister Nayrock tells Picard that he and his people are not prepared to deal with the prisoners. That's why the prisoners were actually created in the first place. Picard says he'll detach an away team, but when it arrives on the planet, it consists of Troy, Data, Worf, and Picard. Prime Minister Nayrock is incredulous. This is all you've brought? These soldiers are on their way here. They're dangerous. Time now for a Kirk speech. From Captain Picard and... The rest of the away team. You are dangerous. You made them the way they are. Did you even try to unmake them? Did you tell them how risky this would be for them? They're your brothers, your sons. Look, maybe we could have fixed them, but it would have cost a lot of money, and the people voted and decided to send them away instead. Here's the thing, though they're back, and a serious standoff is underway. The peaceful citizens of Angosha 3 are armed, though they've not raised their weapons good thing, too. If the soldiers perceive a threat, they'll kill them. Well, says Picard, this looks like a good time for us to leave. The end. Seriously, that's the end. (laughs) Picard's like, you made this mess and now you seriously have to clean it up. If you ever do, the Federation will be happy to reconsider your application for admittance. aboard the Enterprise, Picard says, if the Angosian government makes it through the night. The Federation will offer whatever aid is required to rehabilitate the soldiers. And this time, that's really the end.
0: Double ending, I love it. Double ending,
2: boom, boom. boom. When that happens. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I thought about actually just ending it right there and like, so Picard's like, eh, "We're out. The end.
0: <laughs> See you guys." Because it's pretty much true as far as the Engolians yeah, yeah. are
2: concerned. That's what happened.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, when they do the follow-up episode, then uh, then we'll we'll get to see everything that happened in see
2: the here's the thing <laughs> <laughs> okay in the yeah. original series i know that would never happen but i also know that i don't remember every next gen series and i know that writers on next gen do remember previous episodes so it seems possible that this could happen i'm assuming it actually is. doesn't again. yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's sad too because we'll never see james cromwell in star trek again either I know that's
0: the real, real shame. <laughs> it really it's is terrible. So good. I think so it was like
2: wasn't his twin brother George Cromwell though who played uh Zephram Cochrane? I think so. I
0: think you're right.
2: <laughs> you're absolutely right. You almost yeah. never hear about the Georges in the uh, no. in the Star Trek canon.
0: Don't. Um it's an interesting idea here that Danar can keep eluding the Enterprise, you yeah. know, at the beginning in particular. Um but but hasn't the Enterprise computer again, you go back to the computer because it should have seen this like dozens of times. Like, oh, they're hiding the magnetic poles, you know, what what Riker did in peak performance. Oh, they're hiding in a nebula. Oh, they're cloaked, Uh, you know, just like go through all of the things on the flow chart to figure out where they would be.
2: There are two things I'll say about that. First of all, I forgot that Riker did that in peak performance, but I do like the fact that Riker remembered it because that does give a little continuity, Mm -hmm. certainly Mm -hmm. continuity that I forgot. Yeah, but it does give it a little continuity now that data didn't think of it because you're talking about the computer and and. We've talked all the way since the practical joker mm-hmm. um, about the possibility that, yeah, the computer could be sitting there saying that. But, uh, you know, its muzzle circuit is firmly in place. A <laughs> computer doesn't get to say what the computer is thinking unless there's some sort of malfunction or we're on the holodeck. Right. So right. you're not wrong about, you know, maybe the computer would know that, but maybe the computer does. And then, you know, like one little subsystem somewhere in the computer, like maybe a food replicator in an unused part of the enterprise is mm-hmm. sitting there going, why don't they ask me? <laughs> right. Yeah, it does
0: seem that because it seems like as soon as you throw the switch to like, OK, scan this area for that ship and then you don't find anything, the the little subroutine that says, and we also have to check the magnetic poles <laughs> would kick in.
2: Yeah, except they're not going to let that happen.
0: Yeah, there's I know it takes up too much energy.
2: You know, there so. may be good reasons for not letting your computers think, John, but we can talk about that later.
0: <laughs> right. And, you know, it seems like Dana would have some kind of life. Scene. I know that that's the premise of the show here and we have to go with that. Um, but I just thought, does he give off heat? Is there respiration? Is there anything that takes up mass? Anything? It's it's a good trick that O'Brien gets him, but then they just have no luck keeping him after that.
2: Well, it's not O'Brien's trick, though. It's Picard. He's like, look, anything that looks big enough to be a guy. Right. Bring it over. And, you know, the inside of the whole thing is only big enough for a guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he's going to get whatever he's going to get. Yeah. Could have been a, a, a mannequin of a guy, or it could have been could have been anything. <laughs> could have been, but he would have been inside that mannequin of the guy. It was like a Russian oh. nesting doll thing. It's like, oh, he sold a big ship. Oh, look, a little smaller ship came out. Hey, an even smaller ship than that came out.
0: Yes, it's kind of neat. I'm going to talk about a thing that that seems to make sense if you're in charge of security okay. on the Enterprise. Okay, so if you can use a communicator to say turn off the shields or Mm -hmm. turn off the force field, you know, maybe the computer needs to voice verify or maybe the person on the other end needs to voice verify because, you know, literally Danar picks up the communicator from the guy he's just knocked out. It's just like, just sort of like Pee Wee Herman. I say
2: we let him go. (laughs)
0: Right. It's exactly that. Like, uh, turn off the force fields. Oh, okay. Well, somebody said turn off the force fields. So uh, I guess we better do
2: it. Here's what I've never understood about voice recognition, though. Mm-hmm. What if you have laryngitis? Because mm. I mean, you've got two things going yeah. on here, okay? So this is, I don't know who that guy is. We'll call him Ensign Almost Dead Guy. So Ensign Almost yeah. Dead yeah. Guy is down on the ground, right? But the, but yeah. the computer is smart enough to know that uh, his communicator has not left his body, and then it is Ensign Almost Dead Guy's hand that touches the communicator. So that's actually two bits of authentication
1: mm-hmm. that have mm-hmm. happened at
2: this mm-hmm. point. Now... If, if it was more of a biometric device, then maybe it would know okay, well, it's Ensign, dead, almost dead guy, and it is his hand, but his pulse is like really weak, like, like he's been knocked out. Right. So maybe we go for a third thing, like what was your mother's maiden name, Ensign, almost dead guy? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and, you know, and third uh, authentication.
0: Uh, and, and innocent, almost dead guy's uh, communicator is really only about six inches off the ground.
2: That's true. Instead,
0: you know, well, so that might happen I, though.
2: If somebody floods, you know, somebody floods a hallway with gas, you might hit the dirt, and then you talk might hit to the back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. it's an interesting. Here's the thing. What's funny is we got to go back though, because this was 1990. I mean, right now, yeah, you yeah. and I personally, in 2015, are walking around with um, certain biometric devices, right? That would look at us, and if we tried to pull that, and go, yeah, no, pal, come on, you got to, <laughs> you got to do better than that. Right, um, right. but nineteen ninety, just the idea that still it's amazing that wow, he can just he's just got this little thing that lets him communicate and it's just it's just like on him. Mm-hmm. That's still mind blowing in, you know, nineteen ninety.
0: Yeah, very true. You know what else is absolutely mind blowing?
2: Hmm. Huge
0: Jeffrey's tombs. Yeah. Right?
2: Yeah. Huge. You, you get a golf cart through those things easy. <laughs> you can. You can. <laughs> kind of amazing.
0: Yeah, and that's the set that, if I'm not mistaken, gets reused over and over. And and if I'm truly not mistaken, I believe it's the same. It's a redress of that set where Scotty knocked his head in uh, Star Trek
2: V. Really? Yeah, because I thought he was yeah. just in a hallway in Star Trek V. Because he was well, no, he was the, like the, walking with Kirk, and Kirk says, you know, whatever. Right. I know it like the back of my hand, then he hits, And then
0: blam, yeah. Well it's a a redress of that area, and they keep using those those Mm. angled walls and those curved pieces to rebuild other sets. Cool. So they keep they keep recycling, like that transporter room. They just keep using that over and over and over again. Um a lot of decks on the Enterprise. Now, speaking of Star Trek V, we kind of cringed when there were, what, 78 decks? Yes. You know, they're, they're in the turbolift shaft. And, at least uh, 78 decks. At least I mean, 78. That turbo like they only, went up,
2: it. Right, only went up to 78, I think. But, you know, we don't get the impression that they're now at the roof of the Enterprise.
0: Right, right. So now on this Enterprise, we, we've got 40-some-odd decks, and, yep. and it's still just absolutely huge. And we get a deck number for engineering. That's 36, and with the bridge being one. I mean, that, that's quite a hike to get from the bridge to engineering. So now I have to think about that Every time Picard says, like, you know, Mr. LaForge, come to the bridge. It's like, okay, give me an hour. <laughs> Because I gotta go here, yeah. I gotta do this thing. I gotta go to a place, and if somebody stops me in the hallway, that's gonna be no good. <laughs> you know? Yeah,
2: I kind of want. I kind of want actually either a schematic or I want to hear that there are many engineering sections. Like, I'll go to the one on thirty six. Okay, go to a different one. I mean, mm-hmm. not necessarily that they all look exactly the same, because how many warp cores can you have on a ship? But
0: right, right.
2: Yeah, I don't. Eh, this is a really minor thing to get caught on, but it yeah. may start to bug me if we talk about it anymore. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It gives it, gives it scale.
0: If, if it, we talk it about it space. anymore,
2: John, if we talk about it anymore. And you know, what's interesting <laughs> is
0: that the, uh, the saucer section of the enterprise oh, about Lord.
2: 16 decks. All right. Okay. Yeah. You call yeah. me when you're done.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's talk about Dainar's motivations here. I mean, and this might be something I'm sure that we'll come back to maybe, maybe not, but just as a character, I, I was trying to think about the, the consistency of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, So Picard disarms him pretty easily at the end by having everyone else lay down their weapons. Yeah, but but I wonder if that would really work on Danar, considering what we've already seen him do. I mean, he seems to be acting of his own accord very often, not just when he's under threat. You know, so you could argue that when he gets beamed on board the first time, it it is a threatening situation. He's been pulled out. Of his ship, this is potentially an enemy vessel, and but then he just goes to town. He starts knocking people out, and you know they they've taken his weapon away. But it seems like it, it seems like from the beginning, he's doing a lot of like, well, I'm just going to escape. I'm just going to get out. I'm just going to, you know, he's not actually being threatened. And actually, Troy makes some pretty good inroads to to humanize him and to relate to him, so. I, I don't know. That That's something that left me a little, just a little wondering uh, at the end there. You know, I get it. I, I, I get that that's why they had to end it that way with Picard saying, no, 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 he, he's only acting this way because of what you're doing. But it seemed to me like Danar is uh, is also acting of his own accord.
1: Time now to hunt up the big topics in The Hunted. Yes. I am ashamed of the play on words, but it was just too simple to leave laying there.
0: So kind of I feel like there are a lot of topics to hit on this. Um, And I I know that I wrote down several and they're kind of scattered throughout. and You've Mm -hmm. got a few scattered throughout, but, you know, might as well just start with (laughs) start with the beginning. You know, I I feel like one of the messages here is, is about the weaponization of your world. So the Andosians are in an arms race. Um, and this new version of armament that they have is genetically augmented people rather than specifically a, a tank or a gun or an airplane or or just some other object. This is the new version of their weapons. I kind of thought about, remember an Encounter at Farpoint, when mm-hmm. Q keeps showing up in these different guises to to throw in Picard's face humanity's violent and militaristic history. And, and at one point, he's the future soldier with the drugs that just makes him do whatever he needs to do or kills the pain if he's in pain, you know. Yeah. So this seems like the next extension of that, you know. Oh, okay, we'll just create weapons, but now we're creating weapons out of people, you know. Um and I don't know that that is specifically, you know, on on that final level. Saying here is a message: don't create genetically augmented supermen who will become soldiers and, will, <laughs> and take you over. You know, that's that's, yeah. that's a little hard message to swallow. But but the idea of of weaponizing everything, yeah, you know, is um, certainly a fear, certainly a, a, a worry that we have.
2: Yeah. What's weird is you and I try to talk in terms of we try to talk in, in sort of um, broader terms, things that are not, mm. you know, sort of of the day. Mm. And yet, as we record this, it was only about a month ago, I think, month and a half, maybe, that a bunch of like big thinkers. So just to give people context, because, you know, people all the time, like just a couple of weeks ago, we, we heard from somebody who said, hey, I just found your show and I'm listening to all of them. Mm-hmm. And we started three years ago. So, you know, to say, as we do this today, I want to give this like an actual time. Okay. okay. So as we record this, it is middle to end of September 2015. It was in July, end of July of 2015, that a bunch of big thinkers, including Stephen Hawking, uh, Tesla Motors founder Elon Musk, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, and a whole bunch of other people got together and wrote a letter uh, talking about banning autonomous weapons. Um, yeah. The missive unveiled by the Future of Life Institute at the International Joint Conference on Artificial Intelligence in Argentina. I I believe the conference was in Argentina. It was not just about artificial intelligence in Argentina. Uh, At this Joint Conference on Artificial Intelligence uh, labeled autonomous weapons, the third revolution in warfare following gunpowder and nuclear arms. Um, if any major military power pushes ahead with AI weapon development, a global arms race is virtually inevitable, and the endpoint of this technological trajectory is obvious. Autonomous weapons will become the Kalashnikovs of tomorrow, says the letter, which includes Skype co-founder Jan Tallinn and prominent linguist Noam Chomsky as endorsers. Unlike nuclear weapons, they require no cars, costly or hard-to-obtain raw materials, so they will become ubiquitous and cheap for all significant military powers to mass-produce. That is from a uh, Wall Street Journal blog on the 27th of July, 2015. Um, so, so now just, okay. so now so just now, make now a super soldier. Yeah. yeah, well, no, but now, now just make a super soldier. I mean, it seems like yeah. the whole idea of we're going to make a perfect weapon that we can't control. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it's artificial intelligence or whether it's a guy, go to the Manchurian candidate. I mean, so, yeah. so the U.S. takes all these soldiers, I mean, all these people, and turns them into soldiers. And then, of course, they get captured by... I don't think it was ever 100% certain, I guess, because as Manchurian candidate, you would be talking about Chinese. But another government captures all these American soldiers and turns at least one of them into sort of a super conditioned soldier that they can just turn on to become a killing machine and then turn off. Except, of course, the Angosians have something here that they can't turn off. And they're looking for somebody else to, to sort of take care of their problem. It was just, I mean, it was weird to me because you talk about weaponizing the planet. I mean, and certainly there are concerns about that. I mean... In the U.S. in the past year, year and a half, um, a lot of the country has been surprised to find how much military-grade equipment local police forces have ended up with. But even there, you're talking about a guy, right? I mean, your local police station, your local police force may have close to a tank, but that close to a tank is at least driven by a guy. Now, sometimes those guys seem to be decent. Sometimes (laughs) those guys seem to be a little bit less than decent or maybe a little too tank-happy, if you will. Um, but you 're still talking about something that is that is controlled or controllable and and basically the Angosians just sort of create thinking feeling killing machines and yeah. say, "Okay, now you be good <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn 't necessarily uh doesn 't necessarily work
0: well, i mean what you 're describing is skynet you know it 's kind of terrifying
2: yeah right? kinda like- you're know? describing Skynet. You're describing—I mean—you're describing any number of things at that point. I mean, you're describing yeah. Skynet, yes. You're describing some sort of um, crazy ideologue. You're describing um, some sort of zealot, in a way. I mean, you're describing—you're describing something without an off switch. And—and and I'm not saying you should be able to turn people off. I'm saying what you were saying—you shouldn't turn people into mindless weapons. Because that's pretty well, much what they turn them into. I mean, they become... You said earlier you weren't sure about, about whether... It seemed too easy that Picard was um, disarming uh, Roga Danar. Well, Roga Danar has come to, uh, come to liken Lunar 5 to death. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. He, he would rather die than go back there, which means he pretty much considers Lunar 5 as death, but he is programmed to survive. So anything that he perceives as a threat to his life and returning to Lunar 5 would be considered a threat to his life and his mind at that point would be something that's going to cause him to raise a weapon. And so you say, well, it seemed too easy that Picard disarmed him at the end. Uh, Picard basically made it clear you can't send them back to Lunar 5 because if you try to, you will die and they will die and nobody wants either of you to die. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he disarms him not by saying, oh, just don't point a weapon at him. He says, look, remove all threat and I'll see you later. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: right, right. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, that, so that's interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll kind of buy that because I, I guess the element there is the emotional element that, that it, it, you know, this guy can be programmed to do anything that we want him to do. He can be programmed to survive. But what mm-hmm. we can't program is the emotional perception of how he sees his life at Lunar 5. Um, or, or how he sees his treatment by other people. Um,
2: so, yeah, that, that is sort of an interesting element to, to throw in there. They, they might be able to program that, though. I mean, because that's the other thing that happens here. We find out all the way through, horrible, by the way, horrible, that they're like, oh, look, we put it to a vote, and people decided they didn't want to pay the money to fix these guys. Who saved our way of life? So yeah. we're going to send them to Lunar 5, because besides, we may need them to do that again. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, really, right. It's an amazingly, uh, it's an amazingly brutal, um, it's an amazingly brutal episode without being terribly violent. I mean, there's nothing like Remick's head debris or anything like that. No. It's, not, <laughs> it's not a difficult episode to watch, but it's it's uh, at the same time it's just surprisingly. I think in their cold reaction to their brothers, their sons, the the soldiers that they created, I think in their cold reaction to that, it's 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 incredibly brutal.
0: There's nothing wrong about them being concerned about security and there's nothing wrong about them wanting to have a way to defend themselves. Right. You know, clearly this has gotten completely out of hand actually. And it's not even artificial intelligence, but I also thought of uh, when you were describing this wall street journal piece, Mm -hmm. um, uh, a taste of Armageddon, because there's the logical extreme. If we just handed everything over to, computers mm-hmm. that they get to decide how a war gets played out. And then the the humanity involved just becomes the pawns of, uh, okay, well, uh, today it's your day to die. <laughs> and uh, so step into the machine because now it, it's so neat and pretty um, that we just let the computers run everything. You know? um, Picard has a great line here, uh, a matter of internal security, the age-old cry of the oppressor. And I feel like can we will we will hear similar words out of Picard's mouth down the road.
2: Hmm. So, okay. Yeah. I'll take yeah. your word for it.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, now, uh, Data and Danar have a conversation about being programmed. And uh, for that matter, you could say that about anyone, a- as we have said on this show, you know, simply by going through the process of living. But there's something additional here, you know, that I I've thought about Dainar. As this guy going through military training just as we put people through military training today, they they learn how to kill. That, that This has to be a conditioned thing to do. Mm-hmm. So you can't just pull somebody off the street and say, here, go do this job. No, it, it is a learning process. It's conditioning. It's programming to be able to do that. Um, what you can't really control for all the time is what happens after the fact, You know what, what happens down the road. Right?
2: Well, no, you can't control for what happens down the road, but you can you can prepare and plan you can try to help somebody through it. You can have an idea of how you're going to take care of them when they return from this horrible thing that you've asked them to do yeah. i mean I mean because I mean you're right i mean there certainly there's something analogous about okay, so they're soldiers, and yes, we have soldiers, and so you know we're kind of doing the same thing except again, it's sort of like the whole talk about a i honestly. I mm-hmm. did not get the sense that Roga Danar ever took orders from anybody. I mean, I think I think, you know, whatever happened with whatever war started, he answered the call and they took him in a room and said, all right, you're a killing machine now. Don't worry yeah. about it, because, I mean, overall, your thing is to kill these other people. All right. Mm-hmm. We have a way mm-hmm. of life. We need you to protect that. Go. And and there, I, I didn't get the sense that he was part of a regiment that he was part of a uh, that he was part of a, a unit I got the sense that you know they made all of these amazing killing machines uh, answerable to no one hmm. and so that's you know how they actually rounded them up and got them on Lunar 5 I don't know unless they tricked them there unless they said no 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 we're gonna we're gonna take care of you there which they in <laughs> fact do take care of them
0: which they do yeah
2: they just don't they don't give them the freedom for which they fought yeah I yeah. don't know yeah. I mean there's it, this this episode this episode is I mean it's all right. Is there more that you want to hit or should I cuz I mean I, honestly I couldn't watch it without thinking about all of the stuff that we hear about veterans today and everything from Walter Reed, you know, and the and the sort of the bad treatment the veterans or the or the inadequate yeah. treatment that veterans were getting, injured veterans were getting uh, when they returned from that to – And again, I I it's weird cuz we don't normally do like day of kind of stuff, but I wanted to go and look up cuz it's easy for me to sit and say, "Well, we know we're mistreating our veterans." or we know we're not taking care of them but I, I i don't know you know i don't know exactly in what ways we're not in what ex- in exactly what ways we are um yeah. so i went to i went to uh, the national homeless um a website called nationalhomeless.org a fact okay. sheet on homelessness and veterans um america's homeless veterans and this is just here in the states mm-hmm. that's where we are so that tends to be how we start mm-hmm. america's homeless veterans have served in world war 2 the korean war cold war vietnam war uh, granada panama lebanon uh, operating, Operation Enduring Freedom, which was in Afghanistan, and Operation Iraqi Freedom, which was in Iraq, um, or the military's anti-drug cultivation efforts in South America. Uh, 47% of homeless veterans served during the Vietnam era, more than 67% served our country for at least three years, and 33% were stationed in a war zone. So mm. we now, on the streets, and this is only some of what we have Twenty-three percent of homeless population. Twenty-three percent of the homeless population. This is mm. nuts. Twenty-three percent of the yeah. homeless population are vets. Thirty-three percent of male homeless are veteran Are vets? Excuse me. Forty-seven um, percent was from the Vietnam era. Seventeen percent post Vietnam. Fifteen percent pre Vietnam. Thirty-three uh, percent were stationed in a war zone, as we said before. Twenty-five uh, percent have used uh, VA homeless services. Eighty-nine percent. Eighty-nine percent received honorable discharge. Ah. Uh. So, 89% did what they were supposed uh, to do. Yeah. And, and now we're like, okay, well, go home.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Um, and 70, uh, 76% uh, experience alcohol, drug, or mental health problems. Now, can we fix all of that? No. But there's something strange about the fact that, that that's happening. And I couldn't help watching this thinking the thing that was weird to me was I was trying to remember in what context this episode would have been written because this was in 1990. Yeah. And remind me, Operation Desert Storm was in 91? 91.
0: 91, yeah.
2: Okay, so we weren't worried about those veterans yet. Plus, we tend to sort of gloss over them in our minds. I mean, years and years later, like a decade later, we find out there were actually some problems from uh, veterans who served or, or regarding veterans who served in Operation Desert Storm. But in the immediate aftermath of that, we were like, wow, that was that was easy. <laughs> that was an yeah, incredibly right. easy war. Look at that. Um But then it turns out this was actually written before uh, that. Okay, so so this is based on like platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Hamburger Hill, that kind of thing. I mean, this is part of that wave because for a long time we did what I mean, we did do what they're doing um, on Anguishia Three. It's like uh, oh Vietnam, yeah, you were in Vietnam. Hey, look over there. I mean, we mm-hmm. we pretty much just sort of distracted ourselves from it. I guess it was the mid '80s, probably starting with Platoon, that 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 just burst onto America's consciousness. Although you could also say that Billy Joel's song "Goodnight Saigon," off of mm-hmm. the hit album mm-hmm. Nylon Curtain, actually woke a lot of people up to what a crappy existence it was for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's. Ugh. It's brutal. And what's amazing is you would like to think in 19 so this episode was in 1990, you'd like to think, well, here we are 25 years later and thank goodness we got all that taken care of. And we're not even close to getting all of that taken care of.
0: You know, so you mentioned Full Metal Jacket and that came out in 1987. Okay. And and so let's think about Private Pile. Vincent D'Onofrio, absolutely Vincent D'Onofrio.
2: amazing, absolutely amazing. oh, my goodness, Stanley Kubrick, uh that movie. Whoa. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah,
0: yeah, it, it's, yeah, it, it's incredible. What was the one with, uh,
2: what was the one, I mean, this even got down to uh, Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox, Casualties of War, I believe was that mm-hmm. one. I mean, this, mm-hmm. this, yeah, this goes on and goes on and goes on, as far as, like, all of a sudden that it sort of exploded on the national consciousness in our movies and our TV and things like that, in ways yeah. that we had spent, yeah. we, and, you know, we had really spent a good decade, decade and a half trying not to think about it. Thanks, Hollywood. <laughs> but sorry you were saying think about private Pyle.
0: no it's the thing you know uh, private pile i think about it as this guy who who is trained to do everything that he is supposed to do as a soldier but then breaks you know yeah. just absolutely can't handle it and and uses what he has been taught he has now been taught about weapons he's been taught about violence he has been taught all of these things so so I, I see you know it 's not the same of course, but but i, I see a parallel there with Danar. Um, I feel like it it 's an additional part of the story then that we 're talking about what happens to veterans when they come home, but part of that complicating factor is okay well, well what have we set these veteran uh, what have we set these soldiers up to be? what have we set them up to um, to be able to do and and what is their psychology when when they come back?
2: um hmm. so Sounds, you, that's interesting hmm. because i feel like it's less a story about what is their psychology that when they come back then what are we what are we doing about it or what are we doing for them
0: no no i know i mean i i think that this particular episode that this episode the hunted it isn't it doesn't go deeply into the psychology of what oh, okay. happens okay. To them, you know but they're they're also laying the groundwork you know they're they're creating these like you said they're creating these killing machines that that don't answer antibody that even the perception of a threat makes that part of them switch on Mm -hmm. that they, they have no moral compunction about, you know, killing and or escaping and or killing if that means part of the escape. So, um, so that's sort of laying the groundwork for what's happening, but then what does that aftermath mean when they come back? Wait, you know, what do we do about that when they come back? So yeah, this, this, I think, is the big part of the episode. It, it, it's the looking at the terrible history of how we treat veterans of war, and, and we talk about how we support the troops, but there is no consensus on on how much or what kind of support should be shown after their return. You know, so what you're describing is, is, with these statistics is just the the, the horrible numbers uh, of what's going on, but then it becomes a politicized issue as well. Um, and, and it shouldn't be, which is incredibly unfortunate. Um,
2: or but- even a question of money. I mean, and that was that was, right, that was right, horrific yeah. to hear the Angosians say, like, look, we asked the people and it was going to cost too much. Yeah. So, so, you know, we yeah. just sent them that way instead.
0: Yeah. And just pretend like they're not there.
1: Wow. Can you imagine if computers were just allowed to pipe up with their own thoughts and words from time to time? That would be crazy.
2: It's that time of the show where we, uh, where we sort of sum up what we've, uh, what we've done so far. Not what we've done, because all we've done is record a podcast. We uh, sum up what's happened with, uh, with the episode, some of the points that we've talked about and whether or not they, uh, whether or not they all hold up today as an episode, let's say. Um, I feel like this is almost a silly question to ask, but sometimes you surprise me with your answers, John. So <laughs> The Hunted, does this episode hold up? It holds
0: up. I, I'm not, um, I don't think it's an amazing episode. And, and, and here's why. Um, there are a lot of people who say, oh, this is my favorite or it's among my favorites or mm-hmm. within my top five or top 10. Um, when you and I talked about The Defector, we both had the same reaction. We watched the episode and we said, oh, okay, it's an episode about a defector. And then we went back and watched it over and over again and really got into the performances, and really got into the nuance of what was going on there. Mm-hmm. With this one, I didn't have that experience. I watched the episode and I thought, okay, um, they're talking about big issues and it's, it's produced well but when i went back and rewatched it i didn't feel like i got anything necessarily new out of that uh, there was nothing additional that really sucked me in so here's what i like i like that it tackles the big important issues there's a lot of them and i feel like again we just kind of scratched the surface of of the the depths that you could get into about this there's good action there's good acting what i don't like is that it sort of feels like star trek by numbers you know we we sort of end with spelling out the problem and preaching to the opposition Mm -hmm. so now i really appreciate and i like picard's out in this situation you know it's is it really a prime directive thing and i really they're already involved they're already in contact It, it, it kind of doesn't matter at that point but picard's got us out and and that's fine um I, you know, I also thought of Space Seed while watching this. Hmm. You know, maybe that's not coincidental since uh, Ira was a fan of the original series. But I thought about Khan. You know, Khan is genetically engineered to be what he is, to be powerful and intelligent and take over the Enterprise if that's going to be his, his out.
2: Yeah, but we didn't make Khan. I, I, I no, I, no, I, no. I've said before that – I said just a minute ago actually that your answers sometimes surprise me and they do here again. Um a, an episode that you and I split on pretty decidedly was um, The Omega Glory. hmm mm-hmm. And what I liked about The Omega Glory was the Kirk speech. I liked yeah. the fact that at the end of it, it was basically whoever wrote The Omega Glory tapping on the screen <laughs> and saying to whoever was sitting there watching Star Trek, hey, you're screwing up. Here's how you fix it. And that's what this episode was to me. Down to, I, I joked in the recap, "It's time for a Kirk speech. You know, yeah. From yeah. a bunch of people. Um because that would have been a Kirk speech in the original series. Oh sure. Oh, and sure. and honestly There are a lot of people who hate Let That Be Your Last Battlefield because it's a little too on the nose. This episode is very on the nose. But I thought this episode was very well acted. Mm-hmm. Very well acted. To the mm-hmm. point I mean, mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart does not have anything nearly as as awesome to talk about as he did in the Defector, but Man, it may be time to start stop talking about Patrick Stewart's acting. We may have now <laughs> we may now have come to a point in Next Gen where it's only going to make sense to talk about Patrick Stewart's acting when it's bad,
0: right? Because we even peak w- Stewart,
2: we have even yeah. when he doesn't really have much to say, he still brings a tremendous amount of gravitas when he says it, and it's it's almost like he finally found Picard in season three somehow, or he finally decided I don't have to be Picard; I have to be Patrick Stewart being Picard, or something mm. along those lines, mm-hmm. because there's. There is just, again, there's an effortless ease with almost, or a seemingly effortless ease with almost everything he does with Picard at this point. Um, and so that I thought was great. I glossed over Act 4 in the recap because it was just a lot of, you know, action. And it would be silly to go through all of that action because ultimately it doesn't matter. Ultimately <laughs> what happens <laughs> is he says, I'm going to get away if I can. He gets away. He steals the ship. Right. But it was a great action sequence. I mean, it really was just a fantastic... And I was also taken in the beginning when it's like, oh, he's there. Oh, he's not there. Okay, but no, he's... There. Oh, he's not there.
1: Oh, wait, yeah, yeah, where, where the heck
2: yeah. is this guy? I mean, I thought, I thought it was a well-paced story. I thought it was a well-told story. And I'm okay with the fact that we actually do have a Yacy at the end of this episode. We get a moral <laughs> handed to us at the end of this episode. Wow, look at you. You created this killing thing and now you're not willing to take care of it. And oddly enough... That's going to come back and bite you in the behind. I mean, and that's that is that is absolutely the message they were telling. What I find even even make it hold up even more. And what I find it even more horrifying is they were telling that story. What, 16 years after the end or 15 years after the end of the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. one year ahead of Operation Desert Storm. And I can't do math very well. 13 years ahead of Operation Enduring Freedom or whatever we called the thing in Iraq. I mean, this happened. And and 15 years later, we're like, wow, we should really deal with the fact that this happened. And unfortunately, nobody thought, and maybe we shouldn't make it happen again. Or maybe we should make sure it doesn't. And so for you, maybe it's a little too on the nose. But the problem is, we still need to be hit on the nose with it. And uh, I'm kind of glad this episode does.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like I said, I I love the fact that it's talking about these issues. I love the fact that this is Star Trek doing what Star Trek does, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, pulling uh, a a societal, uh, um, a social issue, a political issue and throwing it in your face. I think that's great. There's just something about the production of this episode that doesn't completely fire for me. Mm. But, but that's okay. I I still give it a pass in that respect. You know, I I just think like if you handed the defector to me and you handed the hunted to me, I'm going to watch the
2: defector. (laughs) Well, no, the defector is a more fun episode. (laughs) Sure. The defector is a more fun episode, but I don't get to the end of this episode. Like I asked the question when we were talking about the defector of like, okay, does the fact that he was wrong negate his nobility? Mm -hmm. And there's still a question at the end of that. I'm okay with the fact that at the end of this episode, there's absolutely no question Right. I mean, there's right. a question of how they should have handled what they handled, but there's no question of whether or not they should have tried to handle it. Sure. Uh, they should have tried to handle it, and they absolutely didn't, unless you count, you know, ooh, go away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think ooh, go away is actually handling something. I think it's just, you know, trying to do the whole out of sight, out of mind thing.
0: By the way, you mentioned Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. I did. And, and it's interesting because the other ending of this episode, had time and budget allowed, would have been – violence it would have been a shootout and picard would have left them to do that to each other
2: well picard did leave them to do that to each other we just didn't see it i mean at yep. the end picard's like wow i i, I think they'll probably be fine
0: <laughs> come <laughs> uh, back i in. think they're
2: gonna choose to not shoot each come other back
0: in a week yeah. yeah we'll see so um i mean let's talk about messages then because i think we we've hit all of them
2: yeah i don't but have they, them written out succinctly though i'm sorry maybe you know I mean, ultimately, basically, I guess it might be let, let's let's try not killing, but then okay, well, if we have to, let's make sure we take care of the people who do that for us. Yeah. Um. And, and boil down to it's very basic. I mean, there's actually I don't want to go eco on it, but there, this is almost another cleanup episode. Okay, if you make a mess, clean it up, or that may come back to bite you. And yes, you can apply that to any number of things. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. this case, we will certainly apply it to um to, you know, the people that we arm to, to go take care of, uh, something that we want taken care of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw, I, there are big messages and then the, are the, the really kind of on the nose messages here, mm-hmm. you know, the, the big messages, even more so than the defector. We're, we're seeing this problematic buildup of military force. You know, it, it's this, this Frankenstein's monster let out of his cage you know that that's what happens when when we do this. When you just build, 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 uh, create new ways to destroy each other, and then let them go out into the world. Um, and, and it also is sort of saying that okay, when we have a militaristic or violent answer for our problems, soon our problems will only look like ones that can be resolved by violence. You mm-hmm. know, we, we kind of get to that with with this. Um, but we also have Star Trek's very strong current of compassion for humanity in in this show you know the enemy is misunderstood and it's something of our own doing now specifically it's not our doing in this episode but again Star Trek's not real we're speaking in metaphor right. you know this is uh, an enemy of our own creation. It is a problem that we created. And like you said, we have to clean it up. We have to take responsibility for those actions. And, I, and-
2: forgive me, mm-hmm. and I hate to say we have to clean it up in such cold terms. These are people that we have tasked with doing something absolutely abhorrent. Yeah. And 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 when yeah. they go ahead and do that thing for us, and we know nothing about this war. There there are people mm-hmm. who, I mean, make it make it. Make it a war uh, over which we have no question, World War II, because you mm. can bring up Vietnam and people will say, eh, that was this. You can bring up Operation Enduring Freedom and people will mm. say, oh, that was that. And, you know, we may agree with that. We may disagree with that. So let's make it a war about which we have no question, World War II. And there are even probably some people who will say, well, we didn't really, but whatever. I don't know what those people. Because <laughs> it was like <laughs> right, it was yeah. Japan on one side, Germany on the other. We're sort of kind of in the middle eventually, right. and so let's, you know, not do – okay, so – when, I mean, when you task people with protecting you, you should take care of them. I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, Star Trek actually has this crazy idea that we should take care of everybody anyway. But in this yeah. particular episode, they're saying, look, seriously, though, if these people take care of you, if they leave their lives on the line for you, you know, ask them what they want when they come back. Ask them how you can help them. Don't just decide what's going to happen for them. Although, I mean, you got to say the Angosians, when you read those stats that I just did earlier, the Angosians at least are taking care of them. Maybe not in the way that they want, but, I mean, they, food, clothing, shelter, comfort. These are the four things he mentions. We're missing on one, two, three, four of those with a lot of these people Yeah, that we've done this with. It's just... Uh, well, I, I mean, in
0: in any society, the, you you can sort of pinpoint this idea of, you know, throw away people, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the people who have who have come back from a war that maybe wasn't popular or now they're experiencing problems that have to be dealt with or whatever, it you know, even for the homeless people who aren't war veterans, you know, because uh, yeah. going by the statistics, there are many who are not as well. Yes. But this idea that. You speak to this on a macro level and at Star Trek saying, these are people (laughs) you can't sweep this problem under the rug. You actually have to deal with those people and treat them humanely, you know, uh, whether you look at it as as prisoners or or, you know, just uh, or the homeless or veterans or whatever that case may be. We can't just say, okay, we will we will ignore this problem and pretend like it will go away.
2: Well, the one good thing is, thank goodness TV was there to solve it.
0: Yeah, and it did. So <laughs> it did, then we, so. we got to move on.
2: Yay. Yeah. Yes, we do. But not before we say Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. And as I've said before, there's, there's just all kinds of fun stuff there. There's other movies they're working on. There are graphic novels. There are links to the Roddenberry Foundation, which is, uh, which is you know working anywhere between 100 and 300 years out don't believe me find out for yourself roddenberry.com for more exciting star trek podcasts check out trek fm that is on the lines at trek.fm and for the latest in star trek news and discussion be sure to visit trekmovie.com
0: next week we're back with the high ground
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp11, online at warp11.com, and from the album messages by Key Theory, free to download at k.i.theory.com. Accommodations for half of the Mission Log team provided by Lunar 5. Food, clothing, shelter, comfort. It is not 5-star. It is Lunar 5